Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This week, we were surprised with news that Justice Stephen Breyer, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, plans to retire after the current term ends in June, assuming a successor can be confirmed. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about Justice Breyer's impact on the law and the court, as well as his LGBTQ rights legacy. And then we're going to discuss some of the names that are being floated as possible replacements. I've been working on federal judicial nominations for some time now, including in my previous work as Fair Courts Project Director at Lambda Legal, and now at Legal, and as co-chair of the National LGBTQ Bars Judiciary Committee. And today, I am excited to be chatting with another follower of federal judicial nominations. He's a friend of the podcast. It's Professor Ari Ezra Waldman. How are you, Ari? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, it's good to be back with you. Um, Let me finish your introduction. But yeah, the last time we chatted, it was about um, revenge porn, right? Um, I honestly, I don't remember. Uh, (laughs) But uh, so all that means is that you have to have me back more often so I can remember (laughs) each time what happened last time. That's right. All right. Well, Ari is a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University. He directs the School of Law's Center for Law, Information, and Creativity. He is also the founder of Legally Queer, a social media project that educates the public about the history, present, and future of LGBTQ freedom. And I've been really impressed with um, the social media presence um, of Legally Queer and all of the advocacy that you're doing. Um, education work. Um, it's its fabulous. Oh, thanks. I take inspiration from the social media work that the LGBT Bar Association of New York does, too. I wish we could do more of it, right? So it's every year I get a group of students, some, some from Northeastern, but some from, ever, from elsewhere, to help do research on ongoing and his previous cases. And we've done series on voting rights, for example, and students are integral in getting that material out. It's it's a lot of work. Um, so if there are people that want to get involved, please just don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, and I'll drop the handle in the description for the podcast, but it's at legally underscore queer. Uh, you can find them on Instagram. Are you guys on Twitter as well? We are. We don't have as big of a presence, partly because of my laziness, but we are on Twitter as well. Yeah, the, the follow on Instagram, the graphics are captivating. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that I reached out to you is you had such a fabulous list highlighting some of the potential nominees, and we're going to get into all of that. But let's start with Justice Breyer. So during his 28 years, it's been 28 years on the court. Um, Justice Breyer has been a reliable vote in favor of civil rights for LGBTQ people. Um, He joined the majority in Romer, in Lawrence, in Windsor, Obergefell, Bostock. Um, So, but at the same time, Justice Breyer doesn't really loom large over the court. He's not really known for having written the history-making opinions. Um, so talk to us a little bit about Justice Breyer. What does he mean for the law? What was his kind of role in the court and for LGBTQ rights? 
So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Stephen Breyer. Some of it is personal. All of the justices who have worked with him and the judges who worked with him when he was an appellate court judge and the professors that worked with him when he was an academic beforehand, they all talk about his good humor. And when it comes down to it, this guy, I've never met him except to hear him speak a couple of times, but he just acts and sounds like a mensch. You know, for any people who have a Jewish grandmother or a Jewish parent who are listening, he just sounds like a good person, a uh, someone who um, someone who carries himself with honesty and with dignity and with good humor. And especially given the kinds of people we see in public life in 2022, that's a great thing. Uh, so, so that's important to recognize that this guy is a, Justice Breyer is a good person and we have too few good people in, um, in public life. That said, uh, although he has written canonical opinions, he wrote the majority opinion in Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, which is a central abortion uh, pro-choice ruling that is at risk of being undermined because of the now supermajority of arch conservatives on the court. And even during the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts tried to pick away at it by you know, writing a concurrence that weakened the opinion. But you know, abortion jurisprudence is stronger because of that opinion that uh, the Justice Breyer wrote. And we'll see what happens in Dobbs, which is a new abortion case coming out. Justice Breyer was also known for being conciliatory and trying to seek consensus, which also made him probably ill-suited to the task of leading the progressive bloc on the court right now, because peeling off one vote is not going to change the result in a case right now, because you have a 6-3 conservative majority. Your, his instinct toward, toward conciliation and compromise may get one justice, or that was his goal when Kennedy was around, but now it's not going to help, because even if you get Chief Justice Roberts, there's still five arch conservatives on the court who are going to send us back to the 19th century. So I agree with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern when he said that Breyer was ill-suited to the moment. So although a really good guy and a reliable vote in favor of queer rights, I think it's time for a change. Yeah, it, I think that that sounds right. And, and just thinking about the moment that he's kind of setting up, you know, we're getting ready. We just have news that the court is going to be hearing an affirmative action case. Voting rights is before the court. Um, you know, the fact that President Biden has made a campaign pledge to and, and, and intends to follow through with nominating and confirming the first Black woman on the Supreme Court, it does feel like, um, you know, Justice Breyer probably knows that um, he's making room for for a moment that uh, that's going to make history and that's really important for the court. Yeah, that, he's not an idiot. Um, he sits in a chair. He sits in a seat that actually has a long tradition of Jewish justices. He sits in the seat of Justice Cardozo and Justice Frankfurter. It was interrupted by Justice Blackman, but there was a long history, Justice Fortas, a long history of Jews on the court that are in Justice Breyer's seat. And there are, there's another Jewish person on the seat that Elena in the on the court, that's Justice Elena Kagan. So there, 
the representativeness of the court is improving and will dramatically improve when he is replaced by a, uh, a black woman. And there are so many qualified uh, black women to take his place that it's almost, it, it's almost at the one time, one, on the one side, an embarrassment of riches in that there are, in that the qualifications of many of the people on the shortlist are outstanding. On the other hand, there are so few black women judges that the outs there that the people on the short list are really the whole list. So President Biden has taken up a tradition that Bill Clinton continued that Jimmy Carter really started by appointing more black people of color to the court. And President Biden is doing a very good job of appointing more black women to the federal court. So hopefully our bench is growing as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, President Biden has already nominated and confirmed record-breaking numbers of Black women to the federal courts, including some that are going to be on the short list that, that we'll discuss today, Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, Eunice Lee, Holly Thomas, um, so many um, record-breaking um, appointments and confirmations. And it's, it's certainly important to talk about in terms of the uh, historic significance of what that's going to mean for diversifying the Supreme Court bench, which has had 115 justices in its history and only um, all but seven have been white men. Um, because... Right. And talk about talk about racial and sexual um, uh, discrimination, right? Like for most of the court's history, the nominators, presidents have discriminated against Black people, against women, against queer people, against anyone who is not a heterosexual white man by appointing all white heterosexual cisgender justices. Some of them have been lions of the court. Others have been pretty awful. Most of them have been pretty awful. Uh, so it's it, for those who say that this nomination doesn't matter because it's not going to change the balance on the court on one only in one narrow sense of their right it's still going to be a 6-3 majority of conservatives but there is not just a there isn't just a a figurative or a, a symbolic benefit to having a black woman on the court there are a whole slew uh, there is a whole slew of experiences that comes with being different that you bring to they bring to your work uh, this has echoes in Justice Sotomayor's confirmation hearing when she talked about bringing her experiences as a wise Latina woman to the court, to her, to the decisions that she's making. One of the things that this 6-3 conservative majority on the court is doing, and I talk to my students about this, is they're taking us back to this 19th century idea of law as kind of a formalistic application of principles, regardless of what's going on outside in the world. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people dying of COVID, millions of people across the country and across the world getting infected. Sorry, OSHA, the statute that, that allows OSHA to, um, to issue mandates to protect the workplace didn't have a comma here, which means that their authority is limited. I mean, I'm, hi, I'm speaking hyperbolically, but that's essentially what's going on, what went on the court's OSHA ruling or, or vaccine mandate ruling. So 
But what different people and people of different backgrounds can bring to the court is the experience of life, of a lifetime of marginalization, but also a lifetime of living within the law in a way that none of the, none of the conservatives have ever experienced the law. That's true. And, you know, the other aspect of this is the impact that diversity has uh, on panels. Um, you know, when there, there's been research uh, that's been done about, you know, judging and when there's a woman on a panel and how it influences actual decision making of men on panels. Um, of judges. And so the idea that there will be um, a black woman on the court when the court is deciding important cases that impact race and voting rights and um, a whole range of civil rights issues, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a real tangible uh, direct effect on influencing their colleagues. You'd hope, right? I mean, there, is, there are studies that show that, but I don't know about you, but I have a feeling that nothing influences Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, and Kavanaugh other than their own hatred of everyone else who's different than them and their own lust for power. So I don't know. I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't know enough about Justice Barrett, but I have a feeling that the mere presence of a Black woman on the court is not going to stop Justice Alito's casual racism and homophobia, which isn't always so casual, right? It's pretty overt and disgusting. Um, at least Justice Gorsuch is a little bit more refined in his casual homophobia than his uh, senior colleague from Philadelphia. You know, that makes me laugh because uh, Justice Gorsuch was just, you know, reported for having not cared that uh, Sotomayor couldn't appear if he refused to wear a mask and just didn't yeah. care. Um, so. <laughs> of course. I mean, it was an incredible, I forgot, there was a line in the in New York Magazine that described this experience, I forgot the name of the author, uh, but described Justice Gorsuch as a chronic jerk. And I don't think there is a better descriptor of Justice Gorsuch, just in his writing and the way he carries himself and his kind of arrogant approach to the law just, to, just reflects this kind of arrogant attitude that you know, screw you, you're poor, well, you're shit out of luck, right? Or you're sick, well, you're shit out of luck because the system doesn't work that way. Like chronic jerk describes, I, I'm just going to use that in far more casual situations now because such an excellent descriptor of, well, I don't know, maybe a good percentage of the conservative legal movement now. Wow. And what a contrast to how we, uh, you characterized uh, Justice Breyer at the very opening of this um, this uh, discussion. Um, but before we veer too far afield, let's, um, let's talk a little bit ab about the future of the court um, specifically. So, you know, in terms of process, it took all of uh, 27 days from uh, Justice Ginsburg's death until Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed and seated. And the vote was 52 to 48. Um, that was in a GOP-led Senate. The Democrats control things now, but by the narrowest of possible margins. So if Biden names someone by the, um, by the end of February, that means hearings in March, votes in April, if everything goes right, does that sound right to you on process? That sounds exactly right. I, there, the, 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 the slowest part of this process is likely to be Biden's time thinking about who to nominate. 
he is a notoriously slow uh, is notoriously slow in these kind of things. Although he, as you said earlier, he's been very good at nominating judges at a record pace. If he could nominate someone like previous presidents have in a couple of days or in a week, uh, Chuck Schumer, who's the majority leader of the Senate, has a, a glide path to this nomination and they better do it quickly. Like, you have no idea what's gonna happen tomorrow in the Senate. There are octogenarians sitting in those seats whose votes are essential. It's just this, it's the same reason why appointing someone who's younger to the court matters because you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Someone could drop dead. Dick Durbin, some of, anyone, I don't wanna mention any one particular, particular person, but, but someone could drop dead in the next couple of days, right? And the fact, first, the fact that our system our political and judicial system depends on the longevity of a group of octogenarians sitting in their elected and unelected seats is first bananas, right? Like it shows how anti-democratic this whole system is. But second, but secondly, and more important for process, right? You better get this done. He better nominate someone quickly and you better get this person on the court because you have no idea what the future holds. Oh, that's scary. Um, but yes, absolutely true. And, you know, for folks who have been following, um, you know, cinema and mansion and their refusal to vote on particular um, to reform the filibuster or on some of Biden's signature initiatives, they've been pretty reliable votes on judges. Um, you know, mansion and cinema have voted for almost all of the folks that um, Biden has put forward. So um, fingers crossed, there's a lot of pushing that has to happen, but hopefully we can hold all 50. Um, but let's talk about some of the people on the short list. Um, do, you, do you have a couple, there are a few that pop into mind because they've mm -hmm. just been uh, discussed so so much. Do you wanna highlight those maybe at the, at the outset and then we'll talk about some of the other folks? Sure, there are some names at the top, top of the list. One you mentioned earlier, Judge uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is already a judge on the DC circuit, nominated by Biden and confirmed uh, to a powerful circuit. She's a, a graduate of Harvard and she was actually one of Breyer's clerks. Uh, so if, you know, to fan the, fan the flames there, that would be a, that would be a, a poetic, um, you know, bow on this story. Um, she's young, she's only 51 years old, uh, breezed through her confirmation. But of course, these days, breezing through a confirmation meaning means not get, it means getting no votes from like 40 Republicans at a minimum. Uh, she has an extensive uh, record on uh, social justice. And in particular, she has a really good record in criminal justice, which is something we really can't say for Justice Breyer because although he was a reliable vote on a lot of uh, progressive social policy issues, um, not, always in, not always following in the late Justice Ginsburg and now Justice Sotomayor's footsteps in protecting the rights of the most vulnerable, I'm talking about criminal defendants or, uh, or, or conditions in prison. So uh, that would be a, that would certainly be a, a step up. There's also Justice Leandra Kruger of the California Supreme Court. So this is a state court judge. She was nominated and confirmed by Governor Gavin Newsom and confirmed by the Democratic supermajority. 
in California. She went to Yale and she actually clerked for Justice Stevens and uh, is, is an extraordinary justice, is known at least in California legal circles as at least a consensus builder or a moderate and a swing vote in a court that can kind of swing both ways because of different appointments over the years. Um, she She's biracial um, and one part of her, is, she comes from a Jewish ancestry. So uh, there, there would be some historical uh, symmetry in her appointment to Justice Breyer's seat, which has the legacy of the first Jewish justice on the Supreme Court, which was Justice Benjamin Cardozo. Um, and then there are a little further afield from, uh, from the two top uh, nominee, not top candidates, are judges, are uh, Judge Michelle Childs of South Carolina. She was, uh, she's on the District Court of South Carolina and has already been nominated by Biden to an appellate court and her nomination is pending. So it would be an easy like piece of paperwork to just kind of move her, move her nomination from the DC circuit to the Supreme Court and has uh, the uh, support of the of, uh, representative Jim Clyburn who's very close to President Biden. And the last person to mention who's a little bit of a dark horse is my colleague, Melissa Murray, who's a professor of law at New York University School of Law. And Professor Murray is a, and she also is co-host of the wildly popular podcast, Strict Scrutiny, which was just bought by Crooked Media. So that's um, uh, a great thing. More people are gonna hear her expertise. She's an expert in constitutional law, has written um, amazing scholarship on race and gender and constitutional issues, and is also an absolutely fabulous person. Um, and the youngest of these nominees. Uh, I don't remember, I, I think Justice Barrett is 46 or 45 or 47, something around there in her mid to late 40s. Um, Ketanji Brown Jackson, Judge Jackson is um, the oldest of this group, but only 51. And Melissa Murray is the among the youngest at uh, only 46. So there, uh, there's, of course, we don't know, we don't know what's gonna happen in the future, but all these justices, all these candidates fit the bill. They're young, they're brilliant, they're supremely qualified, and they will diversify the, the court far more than it has been. And in terms of their philosophy, I mean, you mentioned uh, Judge Jackson's history as I believe she was a former uh, federal uh, public defender, um, former attorney for the Federal Public Defender Service in the District of Columbia on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Melissa Murray represents, you know, wrote the first case book um, on, in the field of reproductive rights and justice. And so how do they, the couple of folks that you highlighted, um, fit along the ideological spectrum of what we might anticipate from an appointment? Uh, it, it's hard to say specifically. It's pretty clear that all of these nominees should be, of course, we never know, it should be reliable progressive votes. And uh, if we can be certain of that, I mean, let's, let's put that to the side and assume that, like, what kind of justice are they going to be? Would they be a consensus builder and seek to, you know, side with their Republican colleagues at certain times in order to eke out, in order to strategically eke out wins, or in order to, um, if, would they follow in Justice Breyer's footsteps of trying to seek out uh, unanimity or consensus where possible? 
would there, and I'm sure anyone would where possible, but also it's a matter of discourse and rhetoric and pointing out the absurdities of the current court's direction. Uh, Justice Sotomayor is pretty lonely in that regard right now. She is writing uh, withering dissents from uh, shadow docket rulings, from, for, from, full, from full rulings, and from other, from, from uh, procurium decisions where she is the only one highlighting the danger that poor women are facing by the court's intransigence in letting Texas's anti-abortion law stand, um, even though it's clearly unconstitutional. She is alone as the voice of reason on this court. Not to say that, not to say that Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan don't agree with her, but she's the only one writing. I think that we don't know what their temperament is, or at least I don't know what the temperament of these candidates would be, but at least some of us hope for a more strident voice who is going to be penning the dissents that will be majority opinions in the future, right? We don't know how long that's gonna take, years or decades, but again, we don't know what the future holds. Someone could drop dead, right? And there, things can change pretty quickly. So we need someone there who is going to not just see their role as uh, trying to build consensus, but someone who is building a movement for the future. Yeah, and that's why I'm wondering, there are folks who've been mentioned who are more um, fall on the advocacy spectrum that weren't weren't judges, um, but we we might be able to tell a little bit more clearly what their um, what their philosophy might be. And I'm thinking of um, Kristen Clark, for example, who uh, is assistant attorney general for civil rights division right now, um, or Sherilyn Eiffel, who was the former president and director of the NAACP LDF. Um, what about some of folks like that? Equally as qualified, probably also on President Biden's shortlist because we know the people who are going to be the uh, little brain trust of coming up with nominees and shepherding through the process. Um, uh, attorney, Assistant Attorney General Clark and Miss um, Eiffel would be incredible, right? Like they're their work speaks to the their work speaks to directly the kind of person and the kind of justice that we want, uh, not just based on experience, uh, but also based on what they feel is important. Like there are, it's the same vein as why now Judge Dale Ho makes will make such an amazing judge. So. Judge Ho was formerly the head of the Voting Rights Project at, uh, at um, the ACLU and, um, or was it the Brennan Center? I'm forgetting now. ACLU. Uh, but the ACLU. So Judge Ho was the former head of the Voting Rights Project at the ACLU, brought essential voting right, right, rights cases that protected the rights of persons of color to vote um, and also wrote scholarship in this area, right? So all of these people bring different perspectives. Like just because you're, you were a judge doesn't necessarily mean that you don't bring an advocate's passion to the court. Um, there, you just show it differently. There's a different demeanor. And just because you're an advocate doesn't mean that you don't bring the stature and the 
the stature and the gravitas of, of a, someone who was a professor or a judge. So I don't see them as any different. I see them as all equally qualified and all equally capable of being, of joining with Justice Sotomayor as the head of the um, progressive block on the court. It's true. And the other exciting thing, we talked a little bit, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Justice Leandra Kruger, is there are a few really fantastic options from the state court system. I'm thinking of um, uh, Sherry Beasley, who was the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina, uh, Justice Anita Earls, who's also from uh, the Supreme Court of North Carolina, um, there is Wilhelmina Wright, who is mm -hmm. a judge for the U.S. District Court, um, was, was a former Associate Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, Helen Whitener, um, who was Washington Supreme Court Associate Justice. So there's not a long history of folks with experience doing state court judging. And so that would certainly bring some important diversity to the bench. Absolutely. Uh, there, it shows the list that you're, the list of names that you just gave shows what I was mentioning earlier. Like there is an embarrassment of riches. We have to include also people like Stacey Abrams, uh, even in this list, and as well as her sister, who is the judge, right? So there, there is an embarrassment of riches given how qualified all of these judges, advocates, and professors are. And yet, the bench is not that much bigger, right? All of these people are qualified. The entire bench of black women in in on the bench, the, the entire bench of black women in the judiciary is unfortunately not too big. It's bigger than the bench of queer people on the judiciary, but it's not as big as it should be. Neither are as big as they should be, right? But you just listed, in total, we have now eight or nine names that's longer than shortlists, right? So um, any one of these people uh, will be extraordinary justices. I think you could quibble on the sides about, well, do we want a, someone who's supposedly a moderate versus do we want someone who is has a professor's demeanor? Do we want someone who is an advocate, right? Like those have different implications for demeanor and discourse and how, uh, and, and coming to the court. Also there are political dynamics that may go into play. Uh, does President Biden, President Biden has to make a choice. Does he want a confirmation process that will galvanize the base or does he want something that will be super easy or relatively go relatively under the radar? You know, President Obama chose the latter when he nominated Merrick Garland and we know how that turned out, right? Of course, that was a different Senate, right? That was a different Senate. Uh, so nothing like that is gonna happen here, but also the nomination of Merrick Garland didn't, didn't, didn't engage anyone. There was no political movement based on, we gotta get this guy on the bench. It wouldn't have worked at the time, but social, but social movements in order to be successful have to be sustained. And you can build a social movement over time that is galvanized around exciting judicial nominees. And we, and, and a black judge or a black woman as a justice on the Supreme Court can push that into overdrive. 
All right. So in closing, I'm just wondering, you mentioned it just now, but there are only 14 openly lesbian or gay federal judges out of 870. That's a mere 1.6%. And there are no openly transgender judges, non-binary, bisexual judges on the federal bench. Is there any chance that we would see some a Black woman who is also identifying as queer? Are there any candidates that that you can think of that are on the radar here? Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head. That doesn't mean that they don't exist, of course. That may just be my ignorance. Um, but there, I think we're all in the same boat here in that <clears throat> one group who is underrepresented, I don't want anyone to think that one group who is underrepresented should uh, I don't know if the word jealous or or should be upset that another group that is underrepresented is getting its representation or is going to get its representation. Like that is, that divide and conquer is the strategy and the weapon of the right to keep marginalized populations, to keep the oppressed down, dividing people amongst themselves. So <clears throat> there is a long tradition, uh, there is too long of a tradition of discrimination against persons of color in this country such that it is long overdue for a black justice on the Supreme Court, a black woman justice on the Supreme Court. <clears throat> and sometimes I do forget about um, Justice Thomas, but um, you know, hopefully we can forget about him more soon. Um, but there are the embarrass, it, it is an embarrassment about how, it's embarrassing how few queer judges there are on the federal bench. And there are quite a there are very few in state courts as well. Um, a little bit more, but there are, but there are there are very few. And there, I think there are a couple of reasons why. One is there has been no sustained social movement from the organized queer advocacy groups to appoint queer judges. There are now, like there are some now, you're doing that work. The, the LGBT Bar Association of New York is doing that work. But think back to President Clinton's, uh, President Clinton's um, tenure. Uh, this, President Clinton came to office shortly after the AIDS crisis. Well, during really the AIDS crisis. It was unheard of. No one was thinking that we would go right from the AIDS crisis and Jesse Helms to gay judges on courts. Um, but there was also no movement beginning in that regard. When Obama was in office, there was smattering, but it was not the priority of the, of the organized uh, advocacy groups in the queer community because they were focused on marriage equality and non-discrimination and things like that. Not to say they shouldn't focus on non-discrimination and marriage equality, but uh, social movements have to be sustained. Right. And even if it's not going to happen tomorrow, we have to start acting like it's going to happen tomorrow. They're just like the Victory Fund is organized to put queer people into office. We need an organization that is mobilizing to put queer people on the bench. And uh, that movement has to be well funded. And some of those well healed donors that spent a lot of their money getting marriage equality for a small fraction of the queer community should start focusing 
on a whole slew of other priorities, whether it's homelessness, whether it's uh, walking while trans, whether it's uh, so many of the issues, social issues plaguing the queer community, but in particular, getting people engaged to appoint queer people to the federal bench. Yep, that sounds like a great elevator pitch. Um, I hope that funder is listening now. All right, Ari, well, thank you so much for joining us today to um, talk about this right um, before we all hunker down for this blizzard. Um, <laughs> do you have enough? Well, this will be a great podcast to listen to during the storm. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's snuggled up with this podcast. <laughs> all right. Thank you, you so much for having me. It's thank always you. such a pleasure to see you and talk to you and hear your voice. Same. Thanks so much. <laughs> And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT Podcast can be found on iTunes, on Spotify, and everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Please give us five stars, leave a review. It's how other people find out about us. We'll be back soon.